What's going on, guys? We are back with the 50 Plus One Football Show, your home for all things Premier League and Bundesliga. We have a shorter host of topics for you today, but with me as always, a man who to me is like financial problems to Everton FC, it's Billy. You mean I'm a burden on your potential future? <laughs> wow. Okay. I just, I just meant that Financial problems always seem to find Everton, and you always seem to find me. It was so much nicer, but go on, make it something completely different, something com much worse. I've ruined a lovely moment, listeners. Exactly. I was about to say, you, you, you listeners, you think that this is an abusive relationship. It's not. I just want to say that. You know, make that clear. Yes, yes, sir. But like Lewis said, we have a shorter host of topics and we'll start in the Bundesliga where Max Erbel is finally the head of sport at Bayern Munich. We'll have a look at his credentials and what he could potentially do for Bavaria's biggest club. Then we'll have a look at Dortmund after their loss to Hoffenheim and some serious questions being raised over the tactics and Edin Terzic's future. Before we move over to the Premier League and yes, we'll talk Everson. The 10-point deduction reduced to six, but that's not the end of the issues. And we touched on it last week. We'll have a look at Oliver Glasner's debut as manager at Crystal Palace. But all that and more after this. So, as I said in the intro, Max Erbel, head of sport at Bayern Munich, above Christoph Freund. So come on, you're the resident German on this show. Excited? cause for excitement amongst Bayern fans? I think definitely considering also you finally have someone who is more or less one of those Bundesliga managers who have a great track record of taking teams from relegation to fighting for European places. If you take a look at Gladbach, most notably, obviously he was there for the longest time as a Bundesliga manager, and that's where he kind of also started his managerial career. Just an asterisk before we get started on all of this. I say manager. I am fully aware that he is not a coach in that sense, but in Germany, seeing as you have a sporting director or a head of sport that usually kind of deals with the day-to-day -day runnings of the club and also, you know, building the squad and, and such. It's a little bit different to the Premier League because I'm obviously in the Premier League. The manager is the coach. He also decides how the team is going to be built and whatnot. So I, I get that. Secondly, very, very confusing, but a sporting director in Germany does not mean he sits on the board of directors in that sense. You have a sporting director who is basically like the guy who just oversees all the sporting, uh, let's say, day-to-day -day basis things that, you know, maybe you have like a, um, you know, transfers and, and squad building and all that. But then you have basically his boss who is actually sitting on the board of directors and he has basically the overview of the club's whole uh, sporting's goings on. It's very confusing and also it's harder to translate. Um, so do bear with me. I will try and get it translated as best I can. But yeah, so at the end of the day, Max Eva on the board of directors as head of sport. Christoph Freund as sporting director, he kind of oversees more of just, you know, the senior teams, um, most notably the 
obviously the Bayern first team and the reserves. Max Eber technically has the responsibility for all of sport that includes Bayern basketball, that includes the women's team and all the other sports that Bayern has. Now that we've had that mouthful through, Billy, any questions? I suppose my main one would be, obviously he's one of those figures that behind the scenes more than anything. So what are the players that we know and love that he's had a part in bringing into the, you know, into the public eye? Well, there is quite a big list of them. Obviously, there are also some flops, but I don't know if you have Dante on your track record, Marco Royce, he brought him in from Rotweiss Aalen for 1 million at the time in 2009. And Royce became, you know, one of the greatest German footballing talents of his generation. I think, you know, if it hadn't been for injuries, we would have seen a career skyrocket. So, you know, he, he obviously sold him for 17 million to Dortmund then in 2012, but he was responsible for finding, you know, the raw gem that was Marco Reus. Then if you also think Granit Xhaka, what he's become now, um, obviously a polarizing figure for Arsenal, but I think a lot of Arsenal fans would still say that he was one of their better midfielders. And, you know, if, if, someone comes at me and tries to tell me that Thomas Partey is better than Granit Xhaka, I'm going to be throwing hands. And, you know, the, he's also brought in Jan Sommer, replacing Marc-André Ter Stegen at the time when he went to Barcelona was also no easy task. So he did that and Jan Sommer immediately became a starter. Then you also have a Matthias Ginter, Marcus Thuram. And then obviously... So he was responsible for getting Openda from Lens. Did spend a good ma- good amount of money, but a lot of guys wanted them, or a lot of clubs, I should say. And then also Benjamin Sesko, and I think most notably also Xavi Simmons, because yes, he was only on loan, but you also have to convince a player that leaving PSG for Leipzig is the best career move for him. And that's just a couple of drops in the bucket. Obviously, you have strikers like, I don't know if you remember, Raul Babadilla. Yeah. Man didn't have the greatest run, and I think there was also uh, $7 million in the red after they, he was sold or something similar. It's it's not always perfect, but I think Iba has a very good track record of players that can and have shown themselves to become world players world-class players in some instances but you know players recognized around the world and especially in the bundesliga and there isn't a lot you can say about his about the work he's done so far okay so that's the player side of it and uh, we'll keep an eye to see if we uh, see an influx of former airball players at bayern in the near future but his immediate future at bayern consists of something a little less savory let's put it that way because it's not a wholesome club at the moment so he sort of walked in a little bit as a as a fireman to try and put out the raging fire in that dressing room so what's he got to do basically to try and turn Bayern Munich around we already know that Tuchel will be leaving I mean there are a couple of things 
first of all, there was some speculation that Bayern and Ebert have been in contact for a while. I think that's not a very closely guarded secret even at this point. There are, however, some experts who believe that Ebert was even consulted on the Tuche sacking and seeing what should be done. Because obviously, a lot of people knew when he was going to sign and Tuche wasn't sacked very long before Eba was brought in. Obviously, Eba officially starts his work today, but he was unveiled, so to speak, at a press conference earlier this week. Now, obviously, first and foremost, he needs to find a replacement for Tuche. That's the biggest thing. And I think a lot of fans will at least hope that he brings that football know-how, which, if we're being honest, there has been kind of a vacuum that came in after Oliver Kahn and Hassan Salihamidzic were ousted because I think a lot of experts would take a look at that Bayern board and say, hmm, you know, Jan Christian Dresen, he's now CEO. He used to be CFO. There were a lot of people making decisions, especially in that summer transfer period just this past summer, who didn't have a lot of football know-how, which might explain what we mentioned last week with, you know, Palinia kind of being brought in way too late. And it's just decisions where maybe someone with a bit more football know-how would have acted differently. And I think that's something that a lot of people will hope to see from Iba. Now, Iba said on his pre- during his press conference, I am not, you know, the, the fireman that a lot of people make me out to be. I'm not going to be the guy who all of a sudden writes the ship and completely turns everything around. That being said, I still think a lot of fans hope that that's going to be the case. But like I said, you know, first and foremost, finding a new coach who kind of embodies the Mia San Mia, so to speak, which is, I think a lot of people have said has kind of been lost. Um, restructuring that squad because, you know, that axis of leadership that you, for instance, had in 2013 with Schweinsteiger, Alam, Müller, Neuer, that's kind of gone down the drain a little bit. You only have Neuer and Müller left. Neuer is in his last couple of years of his contract. Müller probably as well. And he hasn't played a lot under Tuchel. It's all very much up in the air, so to speak. Then he also definitely, definitely needs to improve external communication because the club lacked a lot of transparency, especially under Hasan Zalihamidzic. And, you know, he's also going to be the guy who, like Uli Hoeneß, when he used to be doing it, um, kind of takes the media hits for the team and redirects the attention from the team if it isn't performing, which I think uh, you, Billy, have a lot of experience of with a certain special one well funny you should mention the certain special one because there was a report that Bayern had softened their stance for a German speaking manager or a fluent German speaking manager which would open the door to Jose Mourinho also to Zinedine Zidane I think that's more down to necessity than anything else if we're being honest Xabi Alonso he's also you know, a foreign manager in that sense. Yeah, he does speak German. And I think for the fact that he didn't start learning up until a few years ago when he obviously moved to Bayern, um, his German's actually not bad. But at the end of the day, he's still not a native speaker. So I think, like I said, out of necessity more than anything else, 
that is that is more the the reasoning for that stance. And just before we move on to Dortmund, uh, his announcement pictures, they are the loudest pair of trousers oh, yeah. <laughs> I've seen on a man. And that just exudes confidence. And if I was a Bayern fan, that would give me confidence in that man's abilities. Because if he left the house that morning and went, do you know what? Yeah, these are the ones. I mean, look, he's he's got some style. He's got some style. You got to give him that. I think those pants most resemble something that you would see on a golf course in the 80s. I don't know. Is that just me? I mean, he came to the press conference and not many people were paying attention to the pants, but then the the uh the official photos came out as you have rightly pointed out and yeah. I think that sums it up pretty well. The loudest pair of pants that you could ever imagine. Just one thing before we do move on to Dortmund though. Now even the Athletic has come out and said Alfonso Davies agreed to personal terms with Real Madrid. Do you think that a Max Eber coming in has a chance to maybe kind of change Davies's mind? Because there were some reports, you know, as late as Christmas of 2023, where people were saying, oh, Davies has kind of changed his mind and he doesn't want out. And um, he's actually you know, open to a contract extension. And now it's reports of, oh yeah, he's agreed personal terms with Real Madrid. How much do you think Eba might be able to kind of, I'd say, I don't want to say convince Davies, but kind of persuade him, I guess, convince, persuade, doesn't really matter. But I yeah. I was going to say that's six. It's the half, same damn thing. <laughs> I think unless he can find that extra few million euros a week or a year, sorry, in the coffers, I don't think much is going to change. I think he's made up yeah. his mind that you either pay me what I want, you either increase my wages quite significantly, or I'll go to Real Madrid where they will pay me those wages. Because I mean, he'd, he'd yeah. start for Real Madrid over oh, yeah. the likes of Fala Mendy and you know, let's be honest, Ancelotti doesn't want to play Camavinga at left back. So <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a necessity move. Yeah, I mean he's. He's basically asked for a doubling of his salary. So he wants somewhere in the realm of like 12 to 14 million, obviously, before tax. I'd argue that when you have guys like Sash Knobli eating up 20 million on the payroll, obviously, I realize that Knobli's injuries aren't something that he can necessarily control. But at the end of the day, someone who is that injury prone eating up 20 million, I think someone like Davies, who, yes, he's also had his fair share of injuries. Um, and dips in form. But if you look at the guy that he is and the player that he is, and he's still got a lot of prime left ahead of him, I'd say you pay him that money. Because if you take a look at you know the last player who you didn't pay the money that he definitely deserved, he went on to move to Real Madrid and win five Champions League titles. Or four, sorry. And that was Tony Kors. And if you look at the reported replacement of Teo Hernandez, AC Milan have slapped 100 million euros. That report has since been negated 70 to 80, but still 70 to okay, 80 for a freaking 70 to 80 Jesus for Teo Christ. Hernandez when you could quite comfortably save yourself the money and pay Alfonso Davies the difference. But we will cover that if and when he does move in the summer. But now let's talk about Dortmund because they did lose 3 2 to Hoffenheim at the weekend. Some serious questions being raised about the tactics used by Edin Terzic. And uh, it's not all rosy 
back in Germany for Jaden Sancho as well. Yeah, I think a lot expected, you know, after Jaden Sancho hit the ground running with, you know, the assist right in right in his first game. And I think a lot of United fans, yourself included, will probably say, Oh, Jesus Christ, here we go again. He leaves us and then he goes and performs somewhere else. It's, you know, the story of my life, so to speak. That sense is kind of petered out and Sancho seems to more or less not grab a single headline, except one specific one that I think you fished out, Billy. I did fish it out because it's slightly damning in a in a what was a, a relatively poor Dortmund performance, but more of a fringe outlet more than anything is uh, from Derveston. They slandered him and they said he's probably the worst player on the pitch. You know, another poor performance. Um, after the prodigal son returned, the fans were in a state of euphoria. So he started off well, and now it's started to to peter out a bit. And you see some of the videos try, trying a one-on-one where we know Sancho can and has been deadly. Just looks a, a shadow of his former self. And it is very much like that. You know, I, I send you that gift from the Godfather all the time. Just oh, look how they've massacred my boy. Because it is sad to see him in that state of affairs, but it's not just Sancho at Dortmund. It seems to be everyone at Dortmund in a sorry state of affairs at the moment. And could that partly be down to the botched title race last season? You know, they threw it away pretty much on the last day. Yeah, I think a lot of people will underestimate what that does with a team. And, you know, Hans-Joachim Watzke said during the the annual members meeting, you know, some teams will break under that um, experience. Other teams will come out even stronger. And we came out even stronger. And he got, you know, rounds and rounds of applause. That being said, more or less a week later, after the first half of the season ended and everyone left for the winter break, there were the there was that whole thing about yeah, Dortmund are now having like a crisis meeting to see if they have to sack Edin Terzic. So, I think there was a lot of show being made during that members meeting because I would argue that Dortmund still haven't dealt with that loss and they haven't been able to kind of get over losing it in the fashion that they did. Obviously, I would never say that, you know, it's easy to come out of that and, you know, be fine on the other side. But if you look at the fact that Bayern lost maybe or had maybe the worst loss in recent history against Chelsea in the Champions League final that was in their own stadium, and they came out and won the Champions League a year later. That is what, you know coming out of an experience like that stronger actually looks like. And Dortmund right now, one point above Leipzig, if they start falling out of those Champions League places, it can happen very quickly that you slip to, you know, seventh, eighth, and you're out of European places completely. So I don't know how much, or I don't know how many people would say, yeah, they came out of that stronger and, you know, more as a unit because... It doesn't look like a cohesive unit to me. It doesn't. It it is that typical. It looks like eleven blokes that have just rocked up at Power League because there was a team that was short of of players. It's not fantastic 
for Dortmund at the moment. And like you said, look, they haven't dealt with it. If this was like some cheesy Hallmark Christmas movie, this would be the bit where the the protagonist is like, oh, well, the Christmas card shop is going to be bulldozed on Christmas Day. So let's just slump down and, and feel sorry for myself and drink eggnog out of a carton. There hasn't been that knock on the door yet where it's like, no, we can save this. We can fix this. It's like, I think that fix will come when they sack Ed in Tersic. And I've I've said it twice now this season that okay, the story of him being in the yellow wall and then taking them to a, a DFB Pokal trophy and being the manager is fantastic. It's it's great. It is very Hallmark movie. I was about to say that's a fairy tale if you think about it. That is every you talk to anyone in that yellow wall, that is their their dream. But I think if they've got serious aspirations to go for a title again. They need a manager of a higher quality. I'm not saying he's a bad manager because he's shown he can be quite a good manager, but I think he's probably reached his limit with this set of players. Yeah, because if you think about it, the Dortmund squad aren't all that bad. You know, I think I know we say they're missing that star player, and maybe they are, but they do have a good mix of senior players with a lot of experience and, you know, having one a certain amount of titles, if you take a look at Marco Reus, Mats Hummels, you know, that's that's exactly what you would want from your senior players to who who should help the younger talent grow. And then you look at the young talent that they do have, and it's amazing. You know, you've got a, a Julian uh, Duranville, you've got a, a Jamie Bino-Gittens, who's now slowly bursting onto the scene. Which, incidentally... The move to bring back Jaden Sancho has killed his minutes, and, and not I th- in a good way. Like not even you know with reason. So I think we will see a period where Sancho is going to be left on the bench, and Bino Gittens is going to be given more chances because when he does play, he tends to be quite good. I was about to say he does bring more of an attacking punch than Jaden Sancho does right now, and. You know, going back to the squad makeup, the squad makeup has the potential to be third or second right now. Which you have to say, if a squad like that has that potential, and the only reason they're not fulfilling it is because there were a lot of individual mistakes. And I mean a lot. You know, if you think anything from Slotterbeck to Hummels to Chan, multiple, multiple individual mistakes that have cost them games. At some point, you have to ask yourself where the manager factors into that. Because there's only so much a player can do to kind of, you know, kill the mistakes. The manager has to help him do that at some point. And because it's all a mental thing as well, it's definitely not ability. So that's where we again have to look at Edin Tezic. And he was even asked on a pre- during the press conference ahead of this coming Bundesliga match day, do you think that opponents are able to see through Dortmund's tactics a little too quickly? And he obviously goes like, no, I don't think that's the case. Uh, players players know what they have to do, and uh, that's definitely not the case. He was quite short, and he seemed a little bit riled up by that. So, I don't know. I think you also have to ask where the vision for the squad is because you know Eden Tezic is obviously part of that but also no one knows what the boardroom is going to look like when Hatsio Achim Watzke leaves and Watzke being obviously the biggest uh 
supporter of Tezic in the last couple of seasons, there's going to be some questions asked. And, you know, like you said, Tezic, probably not long for this world at, at this point. Well, I said it when it was announced that Hanzak and Vatska would be leaving, that I wouldn't be surprised if once Sebastian Kale got the keys to the kingdom, that if he hadn't already been sacked, then Edin Tersic would be on the way out. So probably that's probably a great place to leave Dortmund for now. But again, any developments, anything that does happen with Edin Tersic, or if you know there is that knock on the door at that point in the in the in the Hallmark movie when they turn their season around, you know that last minute dash to the airport to profess their love. Can you you watch Love is that uh, Love Love is actually Love actually way too often. Uh, and very recently, about time. So, <laughs> but let's leave Dortmund and let's leave the Bundesliga. And now let's talk Everton and Oliver Glasner in the Premier League. So I mentioned it, obviously, in the intro. Everton just can't seem to get away from financial problems. And Billy, what exactly has now been the latest turn of events because it looked pretty good for Everton at some point even with that points deduction they were not in the relegation zone they seem to have turned a corner because Sean Dyche did do an amazing job and has done so far for this season with the players and the resources he's got but now it seems to have another dip in let's say the chronic of Everton yeah so the 10 point deduction was reduced to six that put them up to 15th. Celebrate. Fantastic. Woohoo. <laughs> they still have that second hearing along with Nottingham Forest for further breaches of their profitability and sustainability uh, restrictions. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the potential takeover from 777 partners, which has seemed to be rolling on for what feels like an age at the moment. So they agreed a deal to buy um, Marishi's I think it's 91% holdings in Everton. But they've now lost a significant source of their funding. So ACAP, I'm going to get quite deep uh, in financial speak uh, just a little bit. So do stay with us, listener. So ACAP, a New York-based financial services and insurance company, they've provided 777 with hundreds of millions of dollars in loans and reinsurance business over the last three years, but they are now exiting their relationship with 777. So there will be no further funding from ACAP. So this has been going on for 24 weeks uh, since the deal was agreed with Marishi for his share in Everton. They claimed it would take a max of 12. So that's already not a great sign. Uh, the Premier League have asked, and they've sent a whole host of new questions to 777 partners about how they intend to fund the club going forward. Because if they're losing, you know, funding, <laughs> then yeah. how are you going to, how are you going to fund a Premier League football club? Because it's not a cheap, not a cheap thing. They also own um, uh, the London Lions, the British Basketball League club, uh, and they're in what seem like financial disarray at the moment. So that's not a great look for the good people of 777. Uh, the, the thing that worries me is that they've loaned Everton £190 million already 
to cover operating costs and to finish the construction of that, what will be quite a nice new stadium down on Bramley Moor Dock. But they've indicated that they don't want to lend the club any more money, which, to be fair, they've done twice before. Uh, but the league have offered face-to-face -face talks to try and, like, well, yeah, how can we fix this? Is it going to go ahead? Is it not? Because if it doesn't go ahead, Everton are then in even, even more debt of 190 million, which doesn't help matters because I think they're already they already owe Marishi 450 million because he's lent them money to cover operating costs. I mean, who, so, was, it, who was it that said uh, in in our uni course that you don't buy a football club to make money? You buy a football club because you have way too much money and you don't know what to do with it, and you know a good way to piss it away and still have fun doing it that's the reason why you buy a football club not because you want to make some money off of it we've seen what happens when owners try and make money off of their football club most notably the glazers with manchester united yeah it, you you essentially kill the soul of the football club and yeah just touching away from ever, ever so slightly it was quite refreshing uh, when Jim Ratcliffe giving his, his media interviews to say, I'm not here for a financial gain. I'm here for success with the club, which is what people want to hear. So if I was an Everton fan, the week started fantastically. Oh, We've yeah. had that four points given back to us. It looks like we're going to stay up. But now it's, oh, shit. Because you're you're basically doing some sort of deal with a, with a snake oil salesman. Oh, yeah. It, it's not exactly something where you can say, um, we've got the money coming in and now we're going to be fine. They don't know what they're going to be getting. And any future investor will now look at that club and be like, well, I've seen in the span of about four years, two different owners come into that or two different financiers come in, come into that club and both have exited with not just massive losses, but some serious financial problems on their hands because of the way that club is eating money away. And the problem is at the end of the day that you need someone with extremely deep pockets. They probably need someone like Todd Bowley, at least what from what his bank account can do. Obviously not his football know-how because we all know that's just awful or not. It's negligible. But they still need someone with deeper pockets who has solid financials and isn't also going to have financial problems themselves whenever to need the money. Yeah, I, it's one of those, it's a difficult situation because you look at the state of Reading and their owner, Dai Yonggi, you know, the, the, the EFL have told him, look, you either pay up yeah. debts on the club or you sell the club. And I think the Premier League need to be a little bit stricter with clubs going through potential buyouts or potential takeovers because there's no way Everton should have been allowed to borrow £190 million from a company that the Premier League have now gone, yeah, but how are you going to fund this? I think the biggest issue was the fact that Everton have had these amazing plans to get that new stadium rolling and they probably shouldn't have touched a new stadium 
just even in terms of the financials with a 10 foot pole because they simply could not fund it. It doesn't matter. Obviously, you know, even with outside funding, that hole is what's basically div digging them an early grave in this season. Because at the end of the day, what the hell is the new stadium going to do for you if you're playing championship football and you've lost the money to begin with that you needed? I think a lot of Everton fans, if you ask them right now, they'd say, fuck the new stadium. We're staying at Goodison Park. And if we can get Premier League football again in Goodison Park next season, demolish the new thing. Don't even go for it. I don't understand how you can push through the plans for a new stadium when you seriously just don't have anywhere near the amount of funding that you need to keep the club moving forward, let alone build a new stadium. Yeah, it's it's a difficult well, it's a difficult one because obviously you'd like to think that the club would have some ambition. Obviously Goodison Park's a historic stadium, but this new one will be next level. But I do see the point of, well, a couple of years after you've announced those plans, you're selling your shares. What on earth are you doing? Exactly. I think also if you if you want to say make those arguments like, yeah, you know, a stadium that is maybe also multi-purpose and high tech like Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, for instance, where you can generate revenue in terms of other events doesn't even have to be sporting like concerts and whatnot or you know the Bernabeu is now also in that class of can turn that stadium into a concert venue a venue for um american football whatever you want to whatever you want to do in that stadium at the end of the day in liverpool you already have one massive ass stadium with anfield where you could technically technically speaking host venues like that and also, what good is it going to do when you have a second stadium in Liverpool that is high-tech when you already have stadiums in-country where more events are going to be held? Like, no disrespect to Liverpool, but London is just more of a world, you know, a world city where there are obviously going to be, there's obviously going to be more of a want to have events and stuff like that there. So even if you build a stadium as being one of those high-tech multi-purpose venues how are you going to get the money in and you that's say that just... you do say that but northerners are incredibly passionate people scousers particularly i don't and... i don't i don't disagree but at the end of the day liverpool is a footballing city keep what has made Liverpool such a great city in the sense that you keep Goodison Park what it is. Maybe you've poured some money into fixing the stadium up a bit where where it needs to be. But you know, I'm not going around buying a Ferrari when I only have uh, you know, a couple grand in the bank and I still have to pay off some taxes from last year. Yeah. Well, there we go. That's Lewis's thoughts on a potential new stadium for Everton and the financial difficulties that are being put to light to their potential buyers, 777 partners. But let's quickly finish with a look at Oliver Glasner's first game in charge at Palace. We did say we would have a look at it and it was pretty damn almost perfect. Yeah, I think uh, 
if you if you look at the last couple of Premier League managers who aren't Pep Guardiola, for instance, when was the last time they started out with a 3-0 win, especially if you're managing a team like Crystal Palace? With all due respect. But, you know, a mid-table club, and they get a new manager, and they just whack Burnley 3-0. Obviously, yes, it is Burnley, and Burnley have kind of been cannon fodder for most of this league. But still, you have to, it's, it's like with a penalty. Still have to score them. Still have to put in three goals against a Premier League side. And Oliver Glasner, I think, has just shown that he is a manager to be reckoned with. Yes, I know it's one game. I shouldn't get all worked up about it. But still, there have been a lot worse starts for new Premier League managers. Oh yeah, a hell of a lot worse. It was a potential banana skip because if they lost that, they would have they would have been sucked in to a relegation fight. As it stands now, they're eight points clear of Luton. So I said it last week. The main thing for him this season is keeping them up, and then they can reassess and he can really start to go for it next season. And it was it was good. It took them a while. It took them just over an hour to break Burnley down half an hour of that with an extra man. But once they did, it was like three goals in 11 minutes. So we're getting there. I'm not saying that there's a style of football implemented just yet because he'd been in the job like three days. But I did find it quite quite a good marketing move for Crystal Palace to market the uh, Oliver Glasner gilet. Uh, which he then proceeded to not wear on his Premier League debut. <laughs> <laughs> but would you say revitalizing a hundred percent for that club? Hundred percent. It is like breathing new life into Crystal Palace. It's a good team with some good players, and if they can get Elise back this season, it'd be difficult to keep Elise past this season. If they can get Eze playing well again, difficult to keep Abere as a. But, you know, the likes of Jean-Philippe Mateta, we saw what he could do for Mainz, Mainz when he played there. Odson Edward was fantastic for Celtic. Not really hit the ground at Palace, but they've got some good players. A couple good goalkeepers. Very good centre-back in Joachim Anderson oh, and Mark Gehi yeah. when, he, when he's fit. I do like Tyreek Mitchell or that new guy that they signed at Muniz, that right wing-back. So there is cautious optimism to be had I think from Crystal Palace and obviously we can talk about it more as the season progresses and possibly at the end of the season we can assess the impact that Oliver Glasner's had but I think going off that first 90 minutes I think it's going to be a good one and it's going to be an enjoyable one for Palace well let's just say that we hope these statements don't come to bite us in the ass when Glasner then somehow gets the sack in October 2024 <laughs> but I think that's a good place to end it for this week. And as always, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to 50 Plus One Sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure to check us out and all of our recent and past episodes on your podcast provider of choice. But as always, thank you very much for listening, guys. Keep calm and love the beautiful game.